Hello, welcome to another episode of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN Impress. My name is Kevin Klatt, and I am joined today by Yuhan Chu. Yuhan, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Thank you, Kevin, for inviting me to this AJCN podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Um, my name is Yuhan Chu. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Miguel Hernan's Coastal Lab at Harvard School of Public Health. And prior to that, I received my PhD in nutrition and epidemiology uh, at Harvard. And I also have a medical degree from National Taiwan University. My research focuses on using cause and inference method to design and improve observational analysis with a special focus on nutrition epidemiology and reproductive epidemiology. Awesome. So today we're here to discuss your new first author paper in agency entitled Estimating the Effect of Nutritional Interventions Using Observational Data, the American Heart Association's 2020 Dietary Goals and Mortality. Uh, this paper is super interesting. I hope everybody really dives into it. I think it's a pretty much a seminal paper in nutrition epi that uh, really employs utilizing uh, the target trial framework, which is, uh, we'll get into exactly what that is in a bit, but it's a, it's a different take on observation, using observational data and nutrition epi. Uh, and I think it's, it's pretty novel. And as somebody who does more experimental nutrition, the idea of basically aligning the epi approaches to be more harmonized and in sync with how we think about undertaking trials uh, is really enticing and, and part of why I wanted to have you on just to kind of both for epidemiologists to think about this method, but also for people who do more experimental nutrition to say, you know, don't just don't just toss epi aside, because I think we see a lot of that happening, at least in social media spaces and even in the literature a little bit where there's big debates particularly in chronic disease nutrition about like whether we rely more on randomized controlled trial evidence where you only have a surrogate outcome of disease or whether we rely on observational evidence where you, you can actually observe hard endpoints and events, um, but you have concerns about the, the exposure assessment, et cetera, et cetera. And there's lots of, lots of uh, people highlighting each other's <laughs> limitations without really, um, uh, you know, it gets it gets messy in the literature and lots of editorials back and forth. But I think that um, this is a really nice uh, sort of midway point, maybe that can help to satisfy, uh, be a, a third alternative, if you will. But I'll let uh, let you respond to that. Yeah, this is a well-known debate in uh, in both the field and also uh, people outside the field may also know uh, this debate. And this leads up to the question, uh, then what do we do now? So, so one solution we provided in this paper is using currently available data, we explicitly emulate a target trial of dietary intervention. And you may agree with me that for most nutritional questions in observational study, that they aim to inform dietary guidelines. So the goal is causal. But the analysis part design, it wasn't that obvious. So the contribution of this paper is first, we show how to define a clear causal question. That causal question can map to a randomized trial that we want to conduct um, if we could. And second is how do we design an observational study that we can align with the method uh, of the randomized trial. And the limitation of observational studies such as confounding 
and measurement errors remains. But we do not, so our goal is we try to not to compound them with the other problem or the difference that could be eliminated. Yeah, I think there's often people just assume when you see differences in randomized controlled trial evidence and observational evidence that it's the observational evidence that is the problem and people just highlight, oh, food frequency questionnaires are not as accurate as we'd like or uh, there's residual confounding, which remains potentially true. But I, I like this paper for considering, well, there are other ways that we can treat the observational data that might help it um, align more with trial data. Although we can get into some of that too, that we don't have that much trial data <laughs> uh, with, with, with hard endpoints at least. But let's let's take a step back though and talk about what is th this target trial framework. And you mentioned uh, Miguel's lab as sort of the, the causal inference lab. Um, so what is this field of, of causal inference and what's sort of the history of it? I, I've seen it sort of explode in the past five years or so, particularly in social media avenues. And maybe that's just because I've become friends with more epidemiologists, but there's uh, you know, hashtags about causal inference and a causal inference resolution, revolution and books about it. Um, and, and now it seems to be coming late a little bit to nutrition. So what, what's the history mm -hmm. of causal inference and target trials? Okay, so this is another uh, entire episode <laughs> for this history. So I will just talk about some brief, um, brief uh, uh, key person and the key method that were used for the target trial. So the idea of the target trial or its concept is is something that has been developed uh, very early, at least since 1950s. So a couple of researchers uh, such as Dorn or William Cochran, uh, Donna Rubin or Philip David, they have proposed uh, to think observational analysis as emulation of randomized experiment. So they may not use the term target trial, but idea or the core idea is the same. So in 1974, Donna Rubin proposed the potential outcome framework. So this is a formal framework that we can think about causation using a causal inference language in both observational study and randomized experiment. And of note that the idea of target trial in this early day is they only focus on a point treatment. A point treatment is something that is fixed. For example, do I um, compare vaccine versus no vaccine? This is a point treatment. They haven't thought about um, how to do a sustained treatment. Sustained means, for example, we may have received treatment several times, or like the diet, you have to intervene diet not just on one time, but several years. So in 1986, uh, Jim Robbins, Jamie, they introduced a, no, a new uh, counterfactual model that he called it FFRCISTG. So basically, this model extend uh, Ruben's potential outcome model to the longitudinal, longitudinal study with time-varying treatment. And in the same paper, uh, Jamie also developed a G formula that allows us to estimate the counterfactual uh, outcome probability under sustained treatment. And meanwhile, around 1990s, the computer scientist Julia Pearl also independently developed a counterfactual outcome framework and he introduced uh, a causal graph called directed cyclic graph and um, or DAG. This is like widely used in epidemiology now. So with the framework uh, and this method, 
uh, Jamie and Miguel, uh, my mentor, Miguel Hernan, they expanded and generalized this idea of target trial to study uh, time variant treatment and also to make time target trial more explicit and and for people who are and for people uh, to avoid unfamiliar for people who are unfamiliar with mathematical notation they formalized this target trial approach into some key component and some structural process that we can follow and to specify a clear question and then we can conduct uh, and report observational study in a systemic way so diets is time varying exposure and this target trial approach in a gene method uh, is very suitable to study the health, the long-term health effect of diet, uh, different dietary interventions. Awesome. That sounds uh, that's a, a great history of the, the field. So I guess that I can imagine in my head, you know, I know how to design a, an, an actual experimental trial. And, you know, you think about the populations that you're going to recruit, the the dose, their background intakes, all sorts of things to consider when you're going to intervene on a population. And obviously, you think about what your your causal question is you're trying to, to target. And um, I think a lot of these DAGs and things you're talking about, more experimental folks should engage with them as well because they really get you to think about what what is the causal question that you're asking. And, and sometimes I read trials and I'm like, uh, it's not really clear what you were trying to do. Um, but I guess it, when you think about the target trial framework, how do you set that up using observational data? You're not, you know, truly recruiting folks, and um, but you have uh, this massive data set. So how do you go about setting up the target trial framework? I guess sort of conceptually, but then also technically, what what are we doing with the target trial? Okay, so so first of all, what is uh, the target trial? So for each observational analysis for causal inference, we can um, imagine a hypothetical randomized trial that we wish to conduct to answer the question that we are interested. So this is an imaginary trial. We call it as the target trial. So how to use this target trial? Um, first, we need to specify the causal question. And to do so, we specify the protocol of the target trial. So the key component include um, eligibility criteria, dietary strategy that we want to compare, assignment, and start. What is the start and end of follow-up, and what's the outcome of interest? So this is uh, the key component that people often use in a randomized trial. And the second step is we need to describe how we're going to uh, emulate this target trial using observational data. So we need to specify uh, if there's any differences between the target trial protocol that we have in mind, the, um, in the table is on the left-hand side, versus its observational emulation. So it becomes clear how comparable the protocol and the emulation is. And finally, after we listen all the component, depending on the type of research question, we can choose statistical method. And for this paper, we use parametric G-formula. So this is a more in a high level way to explain target trial. Awesome. And so do you want to go into a little bit what what technically is the the G formula doing? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's okay. not a not an so, easy thing to answer. <laughs> yeah, so I think this um 
So G formula is a generalized form of standardization. So, so in brief, is under suppose all the identifying assumption are, are satisfied. Then the probability outcome, if everyone in the population had adhered to a specific diet strategy, is the standard risk. So our goal is to calculate this standard risk. This standard risk is a weighted average of outcome risk. So in a low dimension setting, we can calculate by hand and with multiple time point or with a continuous variable this standard risk or the way the average outcome become high dimension integral. So one way to calculate this high dimension integral is to use Monte Carlo simulation. So this is what we did in the paper. So more specifically, um, we require long format data set, actually similar to uh, many longitudinal observational analysis. And then using this observational data, we first, the first step is to uh, fit the model. So we fit our model for the outcome and for each time variant covariate and as a function of the past covariate. So we get the beta coefficient from this model. And then we can draw a large number of sample from our observational data. And then we only keep the baseline covariate. Then the third step uh, is more getting more technical is the Monte Carlo simulation. So basically, based on the model we just have and based on the, the sample we draw from the observational data, we start to generate the time-varying confounder. So, so based on the coefficient uh, that we, we use from the model. And then in this simulated world, we do the intervention. So by doing intervention, I mean we will set the value of the intervene variable according to a dietary strategy. For example, in my paper, we say, uh, if fish intake needs to maintain greater than two servings per day, in this simulation exercise, if someone's uh, intake value is below two, the intake uh, fish will be set exactly two. If someone's uh, intake value is greater than two, then, then, then that will just follow that number. For example, it's three serving, then it will become three. We will not do any intervention. Then after we have this simulated history and uh, covariate history, and then we can do the, we can predict the uh, mortality using the outcome model we just built. Then the final step is uh, we would, um, using this pro predicted probability to compute the cumulative probability, probability of the outcome, and then the survival curve. I know this is a little bit getting uh, a little bit technical. <laughs> it's a, it's that's totally fine. So to, to help reviewer or listeners um, conceptualize this, so you mentioned you you basically are modeling intervening on folks if they were to eat the two servings of fish per week recommendation. And then, so what is the like reference or comparator group? So if I did a real randomized controlled trial, I'd have some baseline distribution of fish intake, and I'd be trying to push people to at least two a week, um, and then have a placebo group of just like either no intervention or some, some sort of active or passive control group that doesn't get any advice about fish um, or gets 
more specific advice about another food, um, which we can get into that, <laughs> how that works in a target trial framework, maybe too. But what is what is the reference group in your target trial? I, I assume you, you, uh, you have to explicitly define that as well. Yes. So uh, actually uh, choosing the right or properly control group in a randomized, randomized trial is difficult. So here we choose uh, no intervention. By no intervention is um, they will just follow what their usual diet that we observed in the data. So in, in the sense that we are comparing if everyone in our study population uh, achieving this AHA dietary goal for 20 years versus if everyone in our population they don't receive any instruction. They are just follow what they usually, what they reported. So this is uh, our two comparison group. This is very different than um, most nutritional epidemiology. And another possible way we can also, we can also uh, specify a specific diet strategy. For example, it's possible to compare uh, what's the risk uh, achieving HA dietary goal versus what's the risk achieving, say, m- specific Mediterranean dietary pattern? So that will be another possible comparison. And here we use use no intervention means what they usually eat. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair place for starting as you get people thinking about this. You don't want to yes. overly complicate it at first. But you, you brought up a good point of like, this is very different than the conventional approach where you're typically thinking about like Cox model quintile five or whatever relative to quintile one and thinking about basically a high versus low comparison. Um, whereas this is just intervening versus no intervening. So the comparator is just whatever they were eating without intervention. Uh, but what, what else, I guess, differs between the conventional epi approaches that people are used to reading in the literature relative to the target trial framework? Um, if you kind of, I know there's different approaches that conventional folks take with like change versus no change in intake and whatnot, if you want to just give all uh, listeners uh, an intro to that and then how the target trial maybe differs from that? Okay, I think that's an excellent question. So, well, in the past, I think most of people uh, focus on the difference of the analytical analytic method. So they focus on, we use parametric G formula and other people use, um, most conventional people use the Cox model, but actually there's so many other differences that, um, that, that I that I can uh, give an example. For example, um, many conventional analysis they attempt to address a question like the change in red meat intake or a change in dietary score. Um, for example, subsequent mortality risk, and then then that's think about how to map uh, this uh, conventional approach to the target trial. So a possible conventional analysis design might be looking at comparing, for example, the quintile of 12-year change in red meat and the subsequent risk of mortality from year 12 to year 28. So in a, in a target trial, this is because they are comparing the difference between the red meat in baseline year and year 12. 
So in a diet strategy, this is basically say no intervention in baseline year for everyone. And then we need to change, for example, decrease red meat uh, 0.5 serving per day. Suppose this is quintile five. Then this group will be decreased red meat 0.5 serving per day in year 12. So then the question is, then when do you ask participants to decrease the red meat intake? So only in year 12 or earlier than that, or they can do decrease into any time between. Yeah, so, there's big big assumptions so, there that the, there was a sustained yes. intervention, but you don't really exactly, know between. Exactly. <laughs> get a lot of food frequency questionnaires <laughs> in between that you're just not not really utilizing. And then the reference Correct. group there is basically no change, right? Which is problematic. Yes, so in some they will sense. be. So the change, the no, well, actually, no change is no change between zero uh, baseline questionnaire and the year twelve. Right. And then but they could they could change in between. So basically there's no not accounting the change in between. And in contrast, in think about like if we're going to run a randomized trial, intervention will start after the assignment. So basically intervention will start after baseline, starting at baseline. So in our target strategy is starting at baseline up to 20 years. So it's a 20 years long intervention. And then the other difference is, uh, for example, we intervene for 20 years and then we analyze like the trial to see what's the outcome after 20 years. But the difference is in people when, when they do the change, they see the subsequent mortality risk. For example, they will analyze mortality risk from year 12 to year 28. So if you are thinking about this as a target trial, basically say intervention stop at year 12. Now we're starting to count how many people died between year 12 to year 28. And then without accounting. So basically year 12 to year 28 is, is sort of like no intervention. And then when they also didn't account for what would be the risk between year zero to year 12. So this is actually the key difference of um, the change intake in conventional, how you map to the target trial table. Does this so, make sense? Yeah, and so mm -hmm. I think just to maybe dig it slightly deeper for readers, like the conceptually what this is, the target trial is more like a per protocol analysis in some sense. And then the conventional change in approaches sort of just assume that uh, the, the difference between year 12 and the difference between baseline is almost a sustained intervention over that time. And then you have a long period of follow-up of, of basically no intervention after that. Um, mm -hmm. So that's sort of conceptually, but then functionally and technically, you're only really using two food frequency questionnaires in the change in intake. And you're not accounting for any changes in... Uh, other time varying confounders there, like if cholesterol changes or if you get a diagnosis midway and you totally change your diet, um, there's there's so many things that could be happening between basically the baseline and your year 12 and the change in intake that aren't really accounted for. The target trial framework, if I understand correctly, is using basically all of the food frequency questionnaires and all the follow-up time points throughout that you know 20 year period or whatever. Um, that you're that you're looking at individuals and you're also 
accounting for the time varying confounders and at those time points as well. Yeah, this is very different from uh, conventional analysis, which only take the difference between two questionnaire and the intervention in the target trial approach. When we say this intervention for 20 years, basically we are just taking all the full frequency questionnaire throughout 20 years. And we do the intervention uh, in, each, uh, in each questionnaire. Then the second difference is in a conventional approach, basically we would uh, have to, would, would adjusting for the time varying confounder, for example, that diabetes could be a time varying confounder that's affected by your previous diet. And once you develop diabetes, you may change your subsequent diet. And your diabetes status may also affect uh, your mortality risk. So diabetes in here is a time-varying confounder that's affected by previous exposure. Uh, so it has been shown that whether you adjust for diabetes or you don't adjust diabetes, either approach, uh, you will create some spurious uh, association that that is not causal. So, so the G formula is uh, is specific developed to solve uh, how do we estimate the sustained effect of uh, dietary intervention, even taking into account this time varying confounder. So that that is the main difference. The way we take all, tackle on the time varying confounders. Yeah, that sounds that's sounds like a really powerful and, and needed approach to consider all those time-varying confounders. I know this this comes up a lot when you look at dietary factors that influence blood cholesterol and looking to see in epi data whether they're associated with cardiovascular events and um, whether you know, some analyses adjust for LDL cholesterol, some yes. don't. And it, it it's kind of messy when you think about it either way. You, you don't want to adjust for LDL cholesterol because it's the proposed causal intermediate, but then if you, you kind of do want to adjust for it because it's only a partial determinant of your LDL cholesterol and a lot of other things throughout that time period might have influenced LDL that could introduce confounding. So, but adjusting and not adjusting just sort of never really uh, made me feel that great about the analyses necessarily. Um, but it sounds like the, the target trial framework can and using the G formula can do that standardization yes. or adjustment um, and, and really consider all the different time points. So I, I think um, to help folks understand this a little bit, I don't want to like get into <laughs> what exactly all the modeling does and the Monte Carlo simulations and yada, yada, yada. But what is maybe just conceptually, what is something, what is a factor that sort of determines the model estimates or can really significantly influence the model estimates? Um, you know, you're, you're modeling the intervention effect size here um, I think to people who are not doing epi, maybe me included, that just saying the word modeling is sort of like a black box, but I, I can understand it better when I think about, okay, well, what are things that influence the model's output? Um, so what are, in a target trial okay. framework, what is something that influences the effect size that you're getting at the end of the day? Okay, so how does the model work is, for example, you may be familiar with uh, the outcome regression model. So when we fit an outcome model, basically your um, dependent variable is just mortality and it's a function of all your previous uh, uh, 
previous uh, COVID, time variant COVID and um, dietary exposure. So basically the model, this model, it actually looks very, very similar like the conventional approach. But the difference is we build additional model, which is um, conventional approach doesn't have, which is a time varying covariate. So for each time variant covariate, we also build a model. For example, like diabetes, we will build a diabetes a function of the past covariates. So because we build this model, so then we would predict, for example, we would predict what is the risk of diabetes under my intervention. So, 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 then, so basically, after this, we would have a simulated data set such that, such that we can predict the outcome risk under the history of these covariates that we just predicted. Gotcha. And so I, I'm assuming things like how many people that are in your intervention or that in your, your population are actually eating, you know, to go back to the fish example, like if you're, if you don't have very many people eating greater than two servings of fish per week, your model estimates and the, the confidence intervals are probably going to be really wide um, relative to, and I guess that's pretty similar in the conventional approach too, but particularly when you're specifying this intervention and then modeling intervening on people to achieve that intervention, you don't have very many people that are eating two greater than two servings of fish per week at each FFQ time point, then your, your effect estimates are going to be pretty questionable. Is that correct? Yes, I think, yes, I think this is a super excellent question. So I, the one uh, subtlety I didn't say earlier is uh, specifying a target trial and looking at the data, do the emulation is an iterative process. So we may have an ideal target trial, the question that we want to answer. And then we look at the data. So suppose very few people follow this dietary strategy, then we will have a trouble to emulate this uh, dietary strategy. So the most, um, uh, one of the examples that I encounter is, for example, in the predimate trial, they ask people to um, have olive oil intake greater than four tablespoons per day. When I wanted to emulate this predicament trial, the problem is in our our U.S. population, most people, almost like very very few people, eat greater than four servings per day. So in this case, um, we would run into a trouble that our estimate would be very unstable because it basically it only based on the inference is based on the those the estimate is based on those people who follow greater than four tablespoons per day. So in so in this scenario, one way is we have to modify our target trial question. For example, we can maybe re-specify what will be a reasonable intake value uh, in the U.S. population. For example, we can change it to two tablespoons per day or greater than one tablespoon per day. And obviously, these change the causing uh, our target trial question. But, but we need to ask a question that our data able to support. So this is very similar to, to observational uh, study as well. So in, in the paper, I noticed that you guys chose the food-based recommendations over the nutrient-based recommendations. And in conventional epi, we're 
we're very interested in the nutrient base and there's a lot of papers about that. And I think there are a lot of complexities about jumping from nutrients to food that are underappreciated. Like, like in your olive oil example, for example, well, if somebody's eating canola oil instead of olive oil, do we really think <laughs> that that is like the, uh, going to be that big of a difference at the end of the day? They're, they're very similar in composition in many ways. And, um, so that comparator group issue comes into play because there's not like a placebo for foods. But um, I, I guess I, I wanted to get at why in your approach did you leave out the nutrient goals relative to the, the food goals of the AHA 2020 dietary goals? So that that's, that's an important question. So to... Uh, two dietary goals of the AGA 2020 are, are sodium and saturated fat. So more specifically, they require sodium intake less than 1,500 milligram and saturated fat less than 7% of total energy intake. So you may notice that we change uh, AHA as a food-based AHA because we, we didn't include these two nutrients into the intervention. And the reason is first, um, compared to food, nutrient like saturated fat or sodium, they are more prone to measurement error. This is not just including the measurement error from the self-reported food, but also the measurement error when convert different food to nutrient. So there are two layer uh, of the measurement error. And the second is, it's, it's harder to translate this to a clear intervention. Think about saturated fat, less than 7% of total energy intake can, it's, it's not very clear. So if we really want to achieve uh, this saturated fat intake less than 7%, there are multiple ways. So one way we can say, we can ask participants to reduce red meat, or another way is we can ask them to reduce whole fat dairy, or we can ask them to reduce butter or sweet pastry, etc. So these are different ways to achieve, um, to decrease your saturated fat. So if we want to estimate, uh, if we want to specify a protocol to decrease, with the goal to decrease saturated fat, first of all, we need to specify what is the actionable intervention that we can we can we want to do, and the second because what I just described, there are just multiple ways. So it's very likely each strategy, they may, may have different results. So in other words, we say it's less well-defined because different ways to achieve, uh, to decrease saturated fat less than 77%, they, they, have may, they may have different effects. So basically it's a different intervention and different question. So you might create like a composite saturated fat intervention score that is reductions in tropical oils, reductions in whole fat dairy, reductions in, uh, you know, fatty meats that they've reported, and then try and infer a bit there. It still doesn't get exclusively at the saturated fat issue. And I think that actually rolls really nicely into another question I have of like, so in intervention studies, particularly when it's food-based like this, we don't, there's no placebo um, and there's not always a, an apparent control group that makes the most sense. And you have to sort of define an explicit isocaloric comparator. And uh, this is what makes food-based nutrition intervention trials so uh, not only 
complicated to interpret, but also it allows for them to sort of overinflate their results because you can compare anything to like a butter-filled sugary muffin and, and make your food product look good relative to that. But sort of all the results are relative to one another. And I think uh, you were smart in in some sense of going for the AHA food-based goals, but that sort of opens up the question of what is the comparator group. And I, I get that it's no intervention, but it's also no intervention slash what they were eating instead. And the conventional epi approaches have sort of tried to tackle this with some of the substitution algorithms. Uh, but sort of at a broad question, I guess, is is the, the heart of nutrition science is sort of identifying the dose-response relationship and also asking, okay, compared to what? Uh, in the case of macronutrients and foods where you have the confounding of providing both calories and their sort of uniqueness um, so how does, can the target trial learn from the, the, the hard learned lessons of nutrition and not just ask, okay, AHA goals versus sort of nothing um, and, and start to explicitly define the comparator group a bit more. Um, I, I guess the example folks will be familiar with from the epi literature is, you know, you, you ask does saturated fat and in, independently predict cardiovascular disease when you compare high versus low, but People that are eating high saturated fat diets are eating less of something else, and people that are eating low saturated fat diets are eating more of something else. And so the epi there has sort of tried to say, okay, well, sats versus MUFA and PUFA and mm-hmm. different carbohydrate sources, and sort of I think that added a more clarity to the issue than just um, asking the saturated fat high versus low relative to some. Mm-hmm. ethereal con- uh, idea of like, it's just an average of whatever everything else is. And that varies per population. Um, so how do we, exp- that's my long winded way of asking, how do we tackle dose response relationships and then uh, isocaloric comparators and so not even isocaloric, I guess it should be isocaloric, but how do we, is- how do we look at comparators in the target trial framework? Okay. I think this is uh, excellent future direction. So I didn't demonstrate <laughs> I didn't demonstrate in this paper, but I hope to have a uh, separate paper that would have opportunity to t- describe this. So basically, what you ask, there are two questions: How do we do substitution? So the example you use is uh, saturated fat, uh, high versus low, substitute with other things, um, because I, um, because we want to have a well-defined intervention. So so let's think about. Uh, how do we do substitution effect of substituting red meat with fish? So in a target trial, this required a joint intervention in both red meat and fish. So one possible target trial design is we asking participants in on one to have red meat one serving per day and no fish. And then in arm two, we can have one serving of fish per day and no meat. So this outcome risk difference under on one and on two can be interpreted as the effect of substituting meat, red meat with fish. But in nutrition epidemiology, there's a, there's one challenge on interpreting this because when you change the intake of red meat, it's very possible you may change, may lead to change of other dietary component. So in other words, if we don't specify other food component, this substitution effect will not just substitution of the meat with fish, but it 
could be also including an effect that that because of change of other dietary uh, component due to the intervention on fish and meat. So, and ideally, if we want to get uh, the substitution effect of meat and fish, only through meat and fish, but not other food component, we will also have to ask participants in both arms to maintain the other diet component as usual, or we may, may need to very spe uh, specific ask them to keep the same dietary recommendation for other diet component. So in this way, we will get um, a very clear, well-defined intervention on the substitution. It's really just meat and fish, not through the effect uh, of other component due to the change of a meat and fish. So this is a uh, substitution. And the other question uh, is about those response relationship. So because this is one uh, most in um, most interesting uh, question in nutrition epi, then how do we design a dose response relationship? So using the Remy and fishy sample, then we can design different arm of the trial using different dosage. For example, we can define Remy from, from um, one serving per week and two serving per week, three, like we can like uh, dosedly uh, increase uh, this intake through five arm. So in this way, we will be able to get uh, the dose response relationship. But the challenge it comes uh, that we have to think twice. When we get this dose response relationship for people who, who are assigned to the low dose, uh, of the fish, for example, the Remy intake versus high dose of the Remy intake, we also need to uh, design other other components such that we can make their energy intake more maintain constant. Otherwise, when we decrease uh, someone's Remy intake, most likely they will change other diet component. So the effect that you will get is still causal, but it will be harder to interpret because that would be effect of your intervention plus the change of other diet component due to your intervention. So that's a harder question. Uh, Nutrition is always complicated. <laughs> yes. It's like the problem child of every, every field. Um, okay, so... We, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I think it's probably apparent that the target trial approach is not getting around the typical limitations of nutrition epi that we all see in the discussion sections of confounding and measurement error. And and some the results, you're essentially assuming those are, as you interpret them, you kind of have to assume that those are limited. Um, but is there any unique uh, aspect of target trials relative to the conventional approach that there's, is there any unique limitation that is introduced? Okay, that so the target trial approach uh, basically improved the design and analysis, but not quality of data. So you are right that for a measure confounding or measurement error in diets, that the target trial approach uh, cannot help this. So the target trial approach basically help specify the question and additional. One key uh, assumption that we rely on is we use parametric G formula. So we require all the model we use to be correctly specified. 
So we have outcome model and we have all the time variant confounders. So basically we require all this model to be correctly specified. So that's why when we are building this model, we also try to make the model as flexible as possible to prevent some model misification. So in, so in conventional analysis, I think it's important to emphasize that for the conventional analysis, they have outcome model. So it's also require no model misification in the outcome model. And conventional analysis have one additional assumption that is they implicitly assume the timing confounder are not affected by prior exposure. Because when that is the case, using um, the conventional adjustment, it, it would not introduce additional bias. Gotcha. Oof. It's a lot to wrap your head mm -hmm. around. <laughs> I actually, I really like the, I really like thinking about this because it, it's a nice comparator group for thinking, for really conceptualizing and understanding what are some of the limitations of nutrition epi as we're currently doing it. Um, okay, cool. So, I, I, you know, we've we've just talked a lot. We sort of touched on the AHA twenty twenty dietary goals paper, but can you sort of briefly walk us through what you did there? Um, and then what the general results were that we can kind of just a little teaser for folks who want them to go read the paper. <laughs> okay, so basically um, the agency and paper, we are uh, using the AGA 2020 strat strategic impact goal. So basically it's a set of behavior strategy and health factor and we take um, the data goal from this AGA 2020. So more specifically, uh, they have eight elements in total, include fruit and vegetable, fish, whole grain, uh, sodium, sugar sweetened beverage, uh, nut legume, processed meats, and saturated fat. So this study, uh, the goal of this study is to compare what is the 20-year risk difference in mortality if everyone in our study population continuously follow dietary goal for 20 years, I should say food-based dietary goal for 20 years, versus if everyone in our study population just eat what they reported over 20 years, their usual diet for 20 years. And our main finding, so we use the three cohorts. So um, nurses and health professional follow-up study, they are older. And we also analyze the nurses too. So their baseline so their difference is probably like 15 years difference. So our results suggest suggesting that if we if these study populations successfully achieving this goal, they would have decreased 20 years mortality between 0.35 percentage point in nurses two, and the greatest is 3.9 percentage point in health uh, health professional follow up study, which is the older population. That's a nice control, um, or sort of a, at least looking at confounding a little bit. Um, and then I think you also had looked at some other, um, like non-chronic disease causes of deaths as sort of a, a, a negative control in the analysis yes. that was nice to look at. I, I really encourage everyone to not only read the main text of the paper, but then to go on and uh, look into the supplementary and the appendices because it's just... There's lots of little pearls of wisdom about nutrition epi all throughout. <laughs> oh, one thing I may wanted to uh, describe a little bit more is we compare different variation of AHA dietary goal. 
So our food base HA diagonal including six components. So because one interesting question is which component actually is the most important uh, to overall AHA goal. So one way we do is doing different variation. For example, we're taking our food and vegetable from the AHA goal and to see if we only follow this set of AHA goal, the results are similar or not. So we found most of the uh, estimate remains similar under most variation of the AHA diet goal. And the slightly more difference is that when we take out, when we not intervene on whole grain, the risk different from uh, slightly smaller. And then the other thing is we also conduct analysis just to see, for example, what if we our trial stop at eight year or 12 year and then we continue following up. So this is a little bit similar, like in a trial, suppose trial end, but they continue follow up without intervention. So in the appendix, we show how to do this. Great. I think this will, for the epidemiologists in the audience, this paper will be like a really good template for how to consider doing this and all of the different ways that it could and couldn't be done. Um, and it sounds like there's a lot of stuff in the future that we can look at as well, too. So I guess that teases up purposely, perfectly for what is next for both you and target trials. And the mind really can wander all the places this stuff can can go and be utilized. Um, I I know we have a shared interest in in pregnancy, nutrition, and I think I'm excited to see what causal inference and target trial papers you you launch in the pregnancy world. But where where do you think target trials need to go and uh, where are you going next with them without any major spoilers for analyses people can scoop? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they are, I feel there's a lot of things that we can do with a target trial for nutrition epi, but I think one one first step I think we have to figure out is uh, what it will be a reasonable comparison group. The thing you you brought up, like what is a reasonable substitution? Because ultimately, we wanted to know the effect of substituting these two food, but not throughout a component. So because actually we want to know the direct effect of substitution A versus B, but not throughout a component. So I think that's one thing uh, I. I really want to uh, work on. That's one thing. And the other thing is I, um, I'm also interested in is like, um, what is the sensitivity window? What is the better timing? And this is particularly of interest in pregnancy study. So for example, is pre-pregnancy is the most important window or during pregnancy? So I think this is um, substantive wise is also important. And um, also, who, because think about us, especially during pregnancy, um, our, our current the, uh, target trial strategy is um, we have the same strategy for everyone. So it's one size fit all. But we can think about people have different size, body size. And for pregnant women, people's baseline, uh, baseline pre uh, pregnancy uh, BNI are different. So using one set of diet strategy for everyone may not be that ideal. So so one thing that I, I want to do is like how to tailor the diet strategy based on the people's characteristic. So this is a long way to go. What about, I think there's a, a lot of, well, I guess one thing I wanted to point out or say is that I guess extending 
this approach is challenging for maybe two reasons. One, there's not a lot of validation studies we we can really do. We don't have very many randomized controlled trials of diet with hard endpoints that you can then go to your epi data and say, okay, can I, if I have this sort of known causal relationship, can I go repeat that in a, in a target trial? But then also, I think a lot of nutrition epi cohorts just have a single baseline food frequency questionnaire, which the target trial needs more FFQs than that. And it seems like the more FFQs kind of the better situation. Um, but I guess that that is, a, am I correct in thinking that is a major impetus to uh, yes. moving forward in this field? Yes. So I think that's super important because in the nurse, in the nurses health professional follow-up study, we are fortunately that, um, that the, 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 the leader of the nurses and health professional, they have the, the vision to collect the FFQ for, for many years. And, and this resource may not be available in other cohort. So you may notice that in our study, we, we say, we use a second FFQ as a baseline year. So the baseline year is the baseline of intervention. And the reason is we, unlike the, tri- unlike the trial, we need adjusting for the baseline confounder. So your, your previous diet is one of important confounders. So that's why we use the first FFQ um, to adjust for the confounder, starting from the baseline as intervention. So, but... In many cohorts, they may not have that unique resources of multiple uh, FFQ. So the challenge is first, how do you adjust for pre-baseline? Uh, we, we call it pre-baseline, it's just like um, before the intervention, you need to have a FFQ to control your previous diet as first. And second, without repeated FFQ, it's, it's impossible to do sustained intervention because you are only have a queue is yeah that's a, a great challenge and how to how do we uh, utilize one f of a queue um, that and what assumption do we need if we only analyze one of queue I think that's also one very very interesting and uh, important topic that that need to be studied yeah and I guess the other big like revolution or or push for a revolution in nutrition epi is to identify mm-hmm. use metabolomics and things to identify biomarkers of exposure and i I'm sure there's a lot of considerations for how do you incorporate that into a target trial framework because you can't really intervene on a blood or urine level but um, yeah that's uh it's it's fun to think about lots of lots of future frontiers for target trials yes so so I think that is super interesting because, well, even we see the omics, if we see the result of omics, then the next step is how do we translate into the clinical implication? So ultimately, we, know, we still want to know what type of intervention that we can do to affect our omics and data affect our outcome. So for the target trial approach, they have, would have one extra step that we have to figure out how how the target trial intervention that may affect the omics. Otherwise, only know the omics without knowing what it, the action you can do, the clinical implication, I would say, will be, will be uh, limited. 
Well, it sounds like you have a long and vibrant career ahead of you with uh, <laughs> a lot of important things to tackle, but I am I'm so yes. grateful you took an hour out of your time to um, maybe more than an hour. We might have recorded this more than once, um, <laughs> but to take some time to talk, talk with AJCN about this paper, I think um, it'll, I hope it'll be one of our, our highly cited papers at the end of this year, because I think it's Regardless of whether you believe in the Tiger trial or not, um, it is a it stimulates a lot of discussion and thought about the role of nutrition epi in our chronic disease dietary recommendations and and how do we push the bar on and moving towards more causal inferences in nutrition epi. Um, and I say that as a non epidemiologist. Um, but <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This was really wonderful. I, I encourage everyone to check out the paper, really read it through with the fine tooth comb and look out for uh, Yuhan, both in the publication record, look out for her on the job market. She's great. Um, and uh, I hope to see you back on the podcast talking about another implementation of the target trial uh, for folks to digest. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Kevin. It, it was fun. And it, they have a lot of great questions. Hopefully I can have a great chat with you next time. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks.